your business to be successful and to not, and to actually really, um, to be viable is about being able to pay livable wages and good benefits to your employees. Like it's not just okay. It's not okay enough to just say, well, you know, I've got my owner's draw and I'm good. You know, it's really about understanding the importance of you as the business owner in supporting all of your employees and helping them to have a standard of living that is really enough for everybody. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Ellen Kaler, Executive Director of the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund and one of Vermont's most creative and impactful nonprofit leaders. Welcome, this is Sam Roach-Gerber and Dave Bradbury, reporting from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Ellen's in the house, Sam. Yay! Welcome. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. So happy that you're here. Thanks. Um, we were able to, you know, sort of like line up your Delta Climb obligations yeah. with a little VSET visit. So we're yeah. super happy to have you up Excited here. Excited about to hear who the, the winners are going to be tonight of the $25,000 prize. See if anybody gets any pilot projects. Boom. Hell oh. yeah. It's Well, I just, you know, I know we've talked about this before, but it's, you know, Delta Climb is one of my favorite accelerators. It's, um, it's so important for the state. And I love that there's such a focus on connecting them with the customer, right? With the utility. Um, because I think that's just the piece for the entrepreneur that's invaluable, um, getting in front of the customer. Absolutely. That's what they always say is like, it's just amazing the access that they have to Vermont utilities and other energy providers in the state to be able to get that inside view of, what do I really need to produce in my with my my um, products or my services in order to like really meet your pain point as a utility? And uh, they just get invaluable insights. And when they get lucky, they get a nice pilot project. They get to test drive it here in Vermont because well, we're a good laboratory for that kind of yeah, thing, for right? sure. Particularly in energy and climate, with the transmission and the companies and the utilities being so accessible and willing and corporates. So yeah, it's a great program. Yeah, I was recently able to um, be on a panel with a bunch of the alum from the program, and I told um, Jeff after, like, I was just so blown away by these alums and how, um, first of all, happy they were to be to come back and pay it forward and talk to the new cohort, but clearly how impactful it had been. And some of them had been several years since they had done the program and still were just so grateful. And it was amazing to see most of them were, um, you know, BIPOC women, which was such a cool thing to see in the space and so inspiring. And um, it just, it really blew me away. So congratulations on running such an amazing program. Thanks. We we're really pretty proud of it. And uh, we do get that kind of kudos from folks over and over again. And in large part, because they really feel like what we're delivering is a, a really robust curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, we're really putting them through the paces. And uh, uh, the other night I was with hanging out with some of them down at the Burlington Beer Company, and they were saying how uh, I'm done with dancing for dollars. I'm done with pitch competitions because all I feel like is they just want the, the donors in the room, they just want to make the money, and they don't really care about me or my business. And so what we were hearing was, no, we, you guys really do care about our business. You care about us, and it's more than just the money. And so, yeah, I thought that was good. I hadn't yeah, heard that dancing for dollars. Dancing for dollars. Yeah. Um, we're so far ahead of ourselves, Sam, oh, here. Oh, we get excited. We got to reel it back, okay? 
Let's talk about young Ellen. Well, Ellen 101. Yeah, Ellen, what's the Ellen 101? Where'd you grow up and, you know, how did you get into this field? Yeah, well, I uh, I grew up outside of Buffalo, New York, and uh, in the suburbs and uh, in places where the farm fields were starting to get taken over by suburban development housing and ever-expanding lanes of, of uh, roadway and... Uh, plazas, basically the the strip mall death that mm. has occurred in so many parts of this country, and uh, I, you know, I always had sort of a bit of an entrepreneurial orientation. I, I, I'm I'm an April baby, so I have sort of a starter. Uh, I was always organized. My mom always used to call me an instigator because I was always into organizing events, organizing retreats, organizing this, organizing that. Um, when I was in middle school, uh, I was really into skiing growing up, um, and we skied most weekends, downhill skiing, and uh, I got really into the whole idea of ski tuning. So it was back early, early on when you could buy PTEX and you could buy yeah. to repair your your repair divots your and, home, yeah. and you could do you know you had the little iron to put on the wax and everything. I got really into that like when I was 11, 12 years old. So I actually had this. That was back in the day of mimeographs, you know, like that. You remember that yeah, smell? Carbon copies. Yeah, stuff, but yeah. remember that smell back then? Ew. I actually was kind of. It's probably illegal to smell that today, right? Yeah. But anyways, I had actually pumped out a whole bunch of of little half page like oh, hire me to tune your skis. And I put them in my neighbor's mailboxes yes. that I knew skied. And so it was hysterical. I, I recent about, I don't know, about 15, 20 years ago when my mom and dad were, were moving south, they were clearing out the attic and I came upon this box of old stuff. And in it was a manila folder of classic graph paper that charted like my sales. But it was like up and down, up and down. Of course it had, like I knew nothing about what I was doing because it didn't have like what my expenses were or my time. Like it wasn't a true cash flow analysis or anything like that. But I was like, I was enamored by like just mapping it out on a That's piece of so graph cool. paper. Uh, good instinct. So yeah, and then I did a lot of stuff babysitting and working in other people's yards. So I, I definitely early on was always into that work ethic. Was definitely. that part of your like important to your parents? Did they kind of encourage you to go kind of make your own cash and? I was encouraged, but it wasn't like you have to do this. Yeah. I and mean, I was lucky that way. Yeah. Um, but I actually, it, it was so impactful though, um, that I actually, my first year in college at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania decided to go into business administration. So I actually thought about uh, all wow. of that. Uh, Wanted and to do more graphs, did you? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But then, uh, as fate would have it, Helen Collicutt, who was a doctor, a pediatrician, who was really a phenomenal leader in the world raising awareness about uh, the chance of nuclear disaster and uh, had been part of the group that had worked to ban above-ground nuclear testing. She came to my campus and basically put the fear of the universe ending in all of us that listened to her about the uh, this is back during the Cold War days, right. you know, where it was still very much at risk. You know, it was Gorbachev in, in the Soviet Union and Reagan and here in the States, and they were just going at it. And so uh, that actually made me leave business administration because I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, figure yeah, out how to do that, how to do both of that of like this this dire need to try to figure out how to end nuclear weapons with like, oh, let's just become a capitalist and figure out like how to make a lot of money. So um, I left that and became a, a political science major and uh, became an activist. 
Wow. Those, man, those moments, right? Like right place, right time, meeting that person. I, I love those moments and to hear how it sort of changed, changed people's paths. Sounds like, David, I could still recruit you to be a CEO of uh, one of our companies, though. So we'll keep that. CEO of a couple of companies now. So let's. <laughs> all right. Can you tell us what the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund is? Yes. Please. It is a independent nonprofit organization that was actually created by an act of the legislature back in 1995. And it was set up to provide really strategic industry-level planning and value chain facilitation and overall like industry development at a higher elevation than um, what is typically done, but in certain sectors. So agriculture and food, forest products, renewable energy, green technology type businesses. They were all the types of businesses that are Vermont's kind of known for. You know, there are green sectors. So Basically to speak. Will Rapp's like yeah, pocketbook, and it, right? <laughs> and it actually came from and Will Rapp had a hand in it actually. Did he really? Oh, oh yeah. Oh. Because the idea for it actually came out of the early years of Vermont businesses for social responsibility starting up. I think they started up maybe in 1991. And there were a lot of entrepreneurs at that time who felt like the Department of Economic Development wasn't really paying attention to the opportunity of what was coming in terms of right. sustainable development. It was mm -hmm. after the Bretton Woods agreements um, and, and the, the, the earliest discussions around developing what are, we now know as UN sustainability goals, uh, sustainable development goals. And so they thought that there should be a separate entity that whose job it was to look farther ahead, look around corners, look for trends, see what was coming over the horizon in these particular fields. And then do grant making, do technical and business assistance, and do loans, mm. actually. That's what's in the statute. Um, and they authorized, they said, VITA may give the Sustainable Jobs Fund a million dollars. But the word was may. Know, right? David, you Gosh, know you gotta, all about You got to read those words. You yeah. can't be. It's not a shall. So therefore, we didn't get that million dollars, but we did get a, a small appropriation that year. My predecessor worked it and did a whole bunch of early stage grant making. But the Vermont uh, Business for Social Responsibility was had a big hand in, in our creation. That's good to know. That's an interesting time, like late, you know, mid to late nineties. Really interesting time. Um, how has the organization? So you're the ED of the organization. I don't know if I've actually said that <laughs> yet. And the, you said the second. One, there's yeah. only been two. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so how has the organization changed since you started as ED? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. I started in uh, November of 2005. And uh, at that time, the organization was pretty much just doing grant making. Uh, it was doing some types of community development work, kind of like what VCRD what does with their visioning uh, work. They had gotten a little bit of funding uh, from a foundation to provide follow-on funding for an individual after the visioning process was done could stay and, and actually try to make some things on the ground happen because that was one of the things that was always challenging in those vision processes is that unless the town committed money to then working on the projects, a lot of times things didn't happen as, as well as they had hoped. So when I came in, uh, we were just in the early phases of starting to get some pretty significant federal earmarks from Senator Leahy for a couple of biofuels-related 
uh, projects. And what was great about it, besides just like this amazing pot of, of, of federal funds that we had to do very little to actually get, is it really gave us the ability to do a lot of trial and error of, of working with farmers, working with entrepreneurs in really, really early R&D stage exploration around, for instance, growing oilseed crops to turn into on-farm biodiesel to run their tractors, for instance, and growing perennial grasses that could turn into pucks or, or pellets that could be used as fuel in certain types of, of uh, boilers, or really early stage, trying to figure out, could any of the algae in, in Vermont waters be turned into a biofuel that could run an airplane, right? I didn't, I didn't know you were yeah. in the algae. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we did that for a good, we sort of milked that along for eight years. Um, and then we also had a, a one, an earmark that, that we collaborated with the Central Vermont Solid Waste District and Vermont Technical College to put that digester on the property. It was the first of its kind that mixed manure and then brewer's waste from, from, uh, from Hetty Topper, uh, from the alchemist, um, and food waste. Cool. And unfortunately, it didn't pencil out in the end, and it's mothballed at this point, looking for someone to actually either start it up or to mm -hmm. take it away. But it was an early stage exploration about, is this something that we could do in Vermont? And now we've got lots of digesters. So it's a good place to do demonstrations. Was part of it, Ellen, also like to come up with other value-add uses for the land and landscape that, that wasn't dairy? Yes. I mean, was that part of it just as we saw that, you know, the struggles? Yeah, definitely. And which that, that really then also led into 2009 when the legislature changed our statute again uh, and asked us to take on what they created and de labeled the Vermont uh, the Farm to Plate Investment Program. So uh, they asked us to create a 10-year plan for expanding Vermont's food system. And part of the reason for that at that time was because we had gone through yet another dairy crisis uh, for a good three years. And so there was just a lot of like, oh, we're going through this again. And at the same time, Farm to School had really gotten right, like organics. Really Organics, we're, we're farmers' off. markets were taken off, CSAs were taken off, and so there was this weird juxtaposition of like, well, what's going on here? Like, what? How? How do we understand this? That's what the legislature was saying. So, we got started uh, working on Vermont Farm to Plate then, and starting in two thousand and nine, we're now on our second ten year plan, and we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of change in our food system in the last twelve years. Mostly so, for Sam, them. when you get your CSA or go down to the market this weekend, you know, thank Ellen and her crew for kicking that off. And, well, and, actually, no for really, Vermont, really. Yeah, the well. CSAs, really. I mean, just attribution-wise. Oh, oh, you don't have to be humble in this podcast. That's the beauty of it, right? We're not. <laughs> well, it really so, was yeah, them, though. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, you're, you're, you're well-known for, for partnering and finding the doers, right? So, And I think that, that levers dollars, resources, ideas, and, uh, and action. And I think that's been really uh, a hallmark for uh, VSJF um, through the years. What other program areas today like yeah. what makes you smile the most because you've, you've got a few i know like there's like six of them on the website but which are your favorite babies well you know i have to say i really uh love our business coaching program because we've got this amazing stable of 9 10 11 coaches that are all c-suite executives in their past 
uh, or currently running a consulting firm where they're doing coaching on their on, on themselves, but they come together as a team mm-hmm. and uh, we're, we've got about 22, 23 clients right now. It's the most we've ever had. We're part of the uh, SBDC's community uh, navigator pilot program. So we've got a, a bit more clients than we otherwise would normally have. Um, but it's amazing to get to work with Vermont's entrepreneurs who, you know, they, we work with companies past the startup phase, you know, we, when they're at least 500,000 typically in sales up to a few million. And so they're in that early and growth stage where they're starting to add some more workers, more staff. They might be getting close to having a management team. They're needing to think about new markets. They have some opportunities. There's some kind of transition going on for that entrepreneur. And they realize, they finally get to the point of realizing that they don't have to go it alone. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay to ask for help. What do you think triggers that? Is it is it because it's a hot mess all of a sudden and, and it they're overwhelmed be. and it isolated? Or, like, I'd be really curious, out of the 22, I think you said, had... Um, how many were just proactively had gotten to the point where I need help versus there was some event, you know, maybe a bank loan or expansion or some crisis? I would say probably at least 90% came to us in part because they, they heard about it from somebody else. So one of the things that we do is we do a, a nice write-up on most of our clients that we publish uh, on our newsfeed and then get it into Vermont Business Magazine and that. And we try to tell the story about, uh, what was the lesson really learned? What was the pain point in the beginning? Why did they approach the coaching process? And then what did they get from that? And and Dave, as you know, your fabulous, uh, lovely wife uh, d- does most of the writing for us, actually all the writing for us. So um, Emily's the best. Yes, yeah, she, she does amazing. most of my writing too. She's amazing. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so these stories, ultimately, usually when we publish them, I'll get a phone call or two saying, can you do that for me? Oh, great. So, uh, I love those you know, stories. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm probably not going to go in search of learning about biochar, for yeah. example, yeah. or some, but- it's really kind of cool to, yeah. to see, and it does get picked up around Vermont, and it's actually one of the reasons we do this podcast, right? We want to tell the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs because we can learn. Yeah, and you know, it's a, what we really try to do in each story is to find that nugget of what they learned about themselves or about their business that they pr- may not have otherwise learned, and then how did they work with that? How did that transform how they thought about uh, what was the possible for their business. Do you have a favorite insight that has stuck with you? Uh, Not exactly, but it's more the sort of tenacity of of them all, you know, or just realizing that they don't have to feel like they have to go it alone. Mm. You know, oftentimes it's, it's, and it's a lot of what we, what I think our entrepreneurs clients get is a greater sense of self-confidence right that 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 they can actually do that they're smart that they have a good gut sense about their business but it's also really important to have the basic business fundamentals that they need to understand their financial statements they need to have a ca- a 13 week cash flow statement they need to understand how to translate their balance sheet from their PL. like and and that they need to have processes and operational systems in place if they're going to get to that next level. They need to understand we're, we're breaking out in a cold sweat here going, oh boy. <laughs> well, no, it's, I, 
I think also once you've um, got to that point, like you said, where like it's okay to ask for help and you get that help, like it's so freeing to be able to focus on what you're good at, yeah. right? Because a lot of these founders, yeah. you know, at least that we work with, they don't have a business background. Yeah. They're engineers or they're yeah. artists or whatever. Um, and so when they kind of accept that, okay, this is the part I'm good at and I'm going to fire myself from these other things – that is a magic yeah. moment for so many. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I know one person that I've met in the, all the years that I've been here looking around who I could honestly say is so unique, who actually ha has the ability to, whether he chooses to or not, but he has the ability to actually be a COO, a CFO, or a CEO. Wow. Everybody else. Unicorn. You, if, you're, <laughs> if you're lucky, you can do two out of three. So helping that entrepreneur recognize that you don't have to go it alone and you're crazy if you actually think that you can not, you know, not yeah. have a, a management team around you. Like that that's actually really smart to have people around you who can't yeah, at some who point are you have to scale things. yourself, right? Yeah, and exactly. you can't you can't yeah. do it all nor nor should you. And I I had one nugget at a UVM conference years ago, Dr. Ben Littenberg had a company and people were like, hey, when did you know that you had to step aside as CEO? That was the panel question. He yeah. grabbed the mic, said, when I wanted to lie. And went away. Because he was like, I didn't have the answers. I just wanted to tell my board stuff. And it was, it was such, yeah. and this is not a, you know, this is a very, you know, he just showed humility and, yeah. and vulnerability. I never forgot that. Yeah. Like, if you feel like you want to lie, yeah. then ask yourself, okay, I'm over my head, get help or, yeah. or yeah. So it's been, it's been fabulous to watch their growth and evolution. Kind of like, Sam, what you were talking about with the entrepreneurs that go through Delta Climb, which is really for startups, same kind of thing in our business coaching program of being able to see how far they've gotten several years out. And we're actually having a big gathering next week uh, with our former and, and current clients. We've oh, invited awesome. them. we got like 22 companies coming. And so we'll be able to get a better sense of how they've weathered things. But, you know, it enabled us during the pandemic. We, we, we pivoted and had had cohort calls where we had groups of small groups of them just talking weekly about how are you managing this and how are you pivoting and all that. And so <laughs> where we, can I find bottles or exactly, where can I whatever find, it right? was. Yeah. But the other big thing that I think I'm, I'm also really proud of is uh, something we that I did uh, really, it was Janice St. Ange did, which was to launch the flexible capital fund L3C. Uh, you know, it was something that, as I, as I mentioned, we were originally enabled to do loan making, but we weren't having any funding for that. So back when I hired Janice in 2007, we started uh, looking at the overall capital landscape and seeing where there were some gaps and figuring out what was missing. And that was during the recession. And so there was a real lack of capital for, for early and growth stage companies. Uh, or it was just like ridiculously expensive if you could even get it. Yeah, confusing. Yeah, and, and it was really confusing. Terminologies were like, So tough. in 2011, we launched the Flex Fund after raising $3.6 million from investors, uh, individual investors and foundations, and um, as well as uh, a couple of, of nonprofit organizations that had uh, endowments. And then we started, Janice started, Investing in a variety of companies, got CDFI designation, raised some additional funds through that. And uh, now we're getting close to closing down uh, 1.0 Flex Fund, and we're currently raising somewhere between 10 and 15 million for the second fund. So uh, looking forward to seeing how that, that's going to come about. But the companies that we've helped and grown uh, through that process 
uh, again, very amazing stories, uh, you know, encore redevelopment. I mean, just incredible what they have been able to do. We were, we were probably one of the, the flex one was one of the last investors into, uh, into Vermont smoke and cure, which ultimately sold to a private equity firm. But it was, um, it was a really complex capital stack that we were helping to top out. Uh, and, and all of that was really impactful for these companies. Well, it, it fills such a void in the ecosystem. And I know, you know, I've been doing this for a few years now and have learned so much from Janice and she's been really generous with her time, but you know, just her, the education she does for Vermonters around royalty financing and revenue-based financing, which is not talked about that often. Um, and it's certainly not our, our go-to deal flow or, um, type of deal, but, you know, having Janice as a resource for those companies where it does make sense and it is a good fit, um, is just so invaluable. I know like global village foods was one that we had talked to and, um, you know, we were talking to them about equity and, um, they were talking to Janice and we, I called Janice and I said, you know, what are you, what are you thinking about? And I learned so much just on that call from her about, you know, how that could potentially work for them. So it was, it's just such a great resource for our state to have. And I think, um, I'm really excited about a second fund coming on. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And the second fund, we're actually going to be able to do more investments in, uh, New Hampshire and Maine and also do some equity as well as the royalty financing near equity. Um, and so she's actually already made a couple of, of, uh, investments in Maine, uh, that have, but they have a Vermont tie, Yeah, you know, like, um, one of the ones, uh, in Maine is going to be producing a wood fiber insulation and the wood that we, we, she said yes to that in large part because so much of our wood basket here in Vermont already goes to Maine for processing. Mm. So it's an opportunity for another market potential for Vermont logs and loggers to be able to ship over to Maine, turn it into this amazing green wood fiber insulation that then could come back and be used in our weatherization and new home builds here in Vermont. So it has the real potential of having this this total circular uh, orientation to it. Yeah. I love that. And like the challenge of seeing how you can make those connections, especially with, you know, how much supply chains have been affected, especially since COVID and like the, you know, the broader we can get our networks for that kind of stuff, the better, I think. You're listening to Start Here, a podcast from Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies. VSET is a public benefit corporation serving Vermont businesses from start to scale. We provide no-cost strategic business advising for any business owner, regardless of stage or industry, as well as venture capital for early-stage tech or tech-enabled businesses. You can find us online at vset.co. That's V-C-E-T dot C-O. If you like what you're hearing, please help us out and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast today. Now, back to the show. How tough or how do you handle the companies you coach and, and invest time and energy in that, you know, probably a, a fair number of them also need capital? Like, are you able to 
say no, you know, uh, hey, we'll coach you, but we're not going to invest or we're just going to invest and not coach you. Like, how's that tension work? Because we haven't figured it out. Yeah, just- it's actually <laughs> it's actually pretty easy for us in part because we are, we're two separate entities, right? The Sustainable Jobs Fund that does the business coaching is a nonprofit. And then the Flex Fund is a for-profit company with its own board of managers that makes all the investment decisions. So it's, it's, it's happened a couple different ways. Uh, where, for instance, one of her clients, one of Janice's portfolio companies, um, Aquavite, was originally one of our coaching clients back in like 2007, 2008, somewhere in that line. Um, and then um, uh, we we finished up with them and s- many years passed. And then they bubbled back up. They bubbled back up and ran into Janice and Janice wanted to have the them as a portfolio company. Whereas, you know, there's been other times where uh, Janice has invested in a company, like there's one right now, and she said, I really want them to go through the coaching program as a, mm. as a condition yeah, of their loan. Yeah, we did that right? with the vertical farm company that we were Yeah, with so there. it just yeah. depends, but we love it. I mean, the whole, we love that story when we can do both and, mm. uh, but it's happened, I don't know, maybe a handful of times. Yeah, it's yeah. good to have that flexibility, I think. Like, one thing that Dave and I have learned is like, you know, if you try to force them into some sort of cookie cutter structure, um, like you have to get coached to us to get investment, right? Like it just doesn't doesn't work out. No. There needs to be that organic piece of it. Um, and just so our listeners know, can you give a little bit of? Um, I realize we didn't touch on like who can get help from Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund. Like, um, I want to make sure that you're getting the right pe- people, the right inbounds. Right. Is, um, is there a fee for business coaching? Is it free? Is yeah. it a hybrid Certain sort of type model? of industry. It, it's a combination. I mean, it has to be in our market sector. So we do a lot of value-added food businesses, forest products businesses. Um, we haven't done any energy businesses in a really long time, but we would love to have some. Um, and there's a potential if some funding comes through when the budget passes that we might be able to do that uh, coming up. But um, typically what we do is a subsidized program. So we have funding from VHCB or sometimes we're able to tap the Vermont training program. In this case right now we have this uh, SBA CNPP program funding. Uh, and so, but uh, which the, with the CMPP clients, it's it's totally free to the client. Um, but normally, it's usually about a 50-50 split. So you know, skin in the game and commitment to, to the process. $10,000 usually in the, that range. But that's over a, a, a 12 to 18 month period. So we spread out the payments monthly because, you know, we're really taking a whole business approach. Uh, we're building a scope of work that is really tailored to that business's needs and their stage of development and what their real needs are. Sometimes it involves helping them really prepare for a capital raise. Sometimes it's, I just need, I need my operations fixed, you know, or I really need to get a handle on uh, on my HR systems, you know. But we, we're typically doing work, uh, the 360 of the whole business. We're doing sales and marketing related support. We're doing HR and operation support. We're f- helping them through their, their understand their financials, is increase their, their cash position, those kinds of things. Um, but it's very tailored. Yeah. So, um, and it's got some homework. So like we're looking for people that are going to like dig in and really want to yeah, work and that's, on that's their where business. Sometimes right? if you, if you invest a little of their own money, they're a little bit more committed to the outcome and the process. And do you have to be a for-profit company? We've only worked. Well, that's not a hundred percent true. There's been a couple of times when we've been nonprofits, but they're very for-profit in orientation. So we, like for instance, 
uh, we supported the Vermont Food Venture Center when they were transitioning to their, when Sarah Waring was becoming their first ED, for instance. We're currently working with Food Connects down in Brattleboro because they do, they're a food hub. Like they, they actually, a couple million bucks in sales. So it sort of depends if it's a more traditional nonprofit of just being very grants oriented, then that wouldn't be the right fit for, because of who our coaches are. Our coaches are C-suite business. It's like owners. If and, you're earning revenue yeah, as yeah. Yeah, an organization. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite questions, because I think this is something that Dave and I every day ask ourselves, what hasn't worked? Is there anything y'all have tried that just... Oh yeah, something embarrassing, total <laughs> failure. You're still like grinding your teeth years later. Well... You know, interestingly, um, there's a real difference in the culture between different economic sectors. Mm. So, for instance, our work in Farm to Plate has been unbelievably successful by all measures and is a nationally recognized. People call us from all over the planet wanting to understand, like, how are you doing what you're doing? And a lot of that answer is because we're small and we're really well connected. But we built a network of organizations that don't see themselves as competitors, mm-hmm. right? They ha- there's a culture of abundance and of forward movement and of embracing change and wanting the food system to be different. Yep. That, that kind of m- cultural mindset is very different than, say, the forest products industry, mm. which we also work in and have been trying to apply some of the lessons we learned in advancing the food system to the forest product system, for instance. And it's it's a very different cultural mindset. You know, there's they're more libertarian, more competitive. It's much more of a commodity industry, mm. right? They're competing against Canada and uh, regulatory frameworks international uh, uh, strains on them. So many of Vermont's logs end up as veneer logs that are shipped on con- in full containers over to China, for instance, rather than being manufactured here. It's sort of the nature of the marketplace for that forest product sector. So they, they don't have as much of a, they're like, well, we've always done it this way. So like, just, 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 Get out of our way and let us do what we know how to do, which is to mill logs or to make fine furniture and just like leave us alone. And I, it's a little harsh to say, but there is that kind of cultural difference that I think is part of the reason why they have continued to struggle as an industry. I mean, there are these larger global market forces, but there's also like, what would it be like if we actually introduced real, more of an innovation mindset into the forest product sector? And maybe it's not going to happen with the, the mostly men who are doing it now, but maybe it's that next generation. And you saw that in the Do North co-working space, they actually had an accelerator using the same coach. Oh, I the love same, it. I was up there last week. Yeah, yeah. the same curriculum, the same uh, facilitator that we use for Delta Climb is running that program. And, you know, the the kind of companies that were attracted to that forest accelerator, a lot of people in the forest products industry were poo-pooed at, like, oh, that'll never work. And, you know, they've attracted some amazing people that have some really cool potential. Will it? Will all of them succeed? No. But, you know, it's it, it actually is starting to show that, you know, there's a, there could be a future for the forest products uh, economy in this state that's more than just, you know, high-end I think it's great. I'm yeah, glad tables, you're on it. You, know? you right. got to start somewhere, and I do think it's it's changed the way I've thought about it. I went down there, I think, for their, last year for their first cohort, and it, it got me thinking yeah. in a different way, which I think is super important. 
Um, <clears throat> I do want to touch just back. This is not your first ED position. You were ED at the Peace and Justice Center. Yeah, for 12 years. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Well, that was back in my activist days. Yeah. Actually, after I, <laughs> I uh, graduated from college uh, in 1989, moved here, in, and in, uh, and a year later, I was the found myself the director of the Peace and Justice Center wow. at the time on College Street uh, across from what was then the Burlington Free Press. Uh, and then we moved down the street to 21 Church, which is now, of course, a head shop. But um, <laughs> Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> so, uh, but back then we were doing an awful lot of different, we were doing anti-nuclear work, we were doing uh, Save James Bay, uh, anti-Hydro-Quebec work back in the day. We were doing a lot of work around anti-GATT and NAFTA because of shipping jobs overseas. Uh, we were doing stuff about the whole um, work that from the Clinton years of trying to really get welfare workers to get out, get out there and get jobs and get off welfare. Um, people forget that that was actually under Clinton's administration that that was happening. Um, and so back in 1996, then I just, I guess got to this point where I was like, damn, we just keep bumping up against the economy. Mm. Like it's the economy that's keeping so many people, the way that we have things structured is, is contributing to this growing inequality that's, in, that's continuing to lock in, um, uh, racial structures that are are keeping holding people back and not helping us to really truly live into everything that's about what our constitution and and the and the uh, Declaration of Independence is really all about. And so I found out about uh, Minnesota. They had done this thing called a job gap study, which was looking at what does it actually cost to live, what are livable wages, right? What does it cost to live? And so I approached Doug Hoffer, our now our auditor, right. <laughs> um, when he was working at the CEDO office in Burlington and raised some funds and basically then launched a whole series of job gap study analysis reports mm. that looked at things like Vermont's livable wage, basic needs budgets, how many people are not earning enough, uh, what would it take to actually do it? Um, and we also created a racial justice and equity project back then and did an awful lot of, of uh, anti-racism trainings back in the mid-90s. So Yeah, fascinating and awesome. Um, how would you describe Vermont's sort of state of entrepreneurship and, and anything you're seeing that helps define what's next for VSJF? I have to be careful on this one. No. Uh, you know, I, I, I think we are very much an entrepreneurial state. I think we are a state of a lot of, of really amazing starters. And I think that where we can be lacking is the ability to go from that early startup phase into more early and growth stage companies. You always have those high flyers that will make it, but there are so many good ideas, good business plans that go unfunded mm -hmm. because we're so focused on the VC model. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's part of the reason why we created the flexible capital fund was that, you know, for every one business that gets, uh, a venture capital deal out of it. There's nine more that got said no to that actually have decent business plans that might actually have a, a go of it if they had the right match of capital right. Uh, and the right supports around them. And so we've really thought about ourselves as always filling gaps and filling niches in, in whether it's the capital continuum or it's the um, business assistance continuum 
or it's the infrastructure continuum, like whatever it is, like we're looking for those gaps and figuring out how do we, how do we stand stuff up that can fill those gaps because they're real needs and they get, often get overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's real opportunity in them. And not sure, not all of them are going to work, but a really large percentage of them do work. Yeah. I, I think <clears throat> one thing that Dave and I try to do is like discourage people from taking venture capital because it's often Good. not the right thing. Good. Right? But it's so sexy, you know, like the new shiny penny. Totally. Um, right. But, you know, so many times we have those conversations where it's like, well, can you can you bootstrap it? And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, well, great, do that. And yeah. they're like, oh. Or use yeah. your customers' money somehow yeah. or yeah. get creative with <clears throat> yeah. a Kickstarter campaign or a, a, a different loan programs. That I mean, there's a lot of, there's some, and Vermont's got really blessed with some really neat um, loan funds, loan programs that, you know, the first fifty dollars to $150,000 really makes a difference. Um, scaling from there has been a little gap and tougher, yes. and that's where the flex funds come in. We certainly, our funds, you know, we've been, we're not instrument specific. It's a lot situational and history has shown us, you know, our hold period in companies are, you know, it's eight years or more. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously yeah. the ones that fail off after four years or so aren't there. So it's not fast money, yeah. um, but it does, you know, it, it's, I, we really try to coach and get people to say, what do you want out of your life and business? Okay, how does the the economics of your business or the outlook align with the type of capital? And here's that that continuum chart that you all came up with so many years ago that you just oh, used I, it the I other have day. It on my desktop, I use it constantly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think part of it too is the is is what's the orientation, right? A venture capital firm they have investors. They they are have promised a certain rate of return to those investors. Janice and I just had this conversation. Right? Whereas Janice invests in companies because they're built to last and we want them to stay here. Yeah. We want them for as long as it makes sense for them to be here, right? right. We want them to succeed. We want it to work for their the business owner's life and for products that are good products that you want to have in the world. Like, I'm sorry, but how many more games do we need really in the world? Like, what do we really need as society in in this day and age with climate change and our survival is at uh, at risk here? Like, what do we really need? That's why we started Delta Climate. It's like, what are the products and services that are going to help be climate change solutions, right? So many, um, you know, even in the, in the value-added food business, there's a lot of products that are about really helping people to improve their the health of their lives, things that make a difference in people's lives. Yeah. And that's what we tend to focus on at the Jobs Fund. I love it. So yeah. important. We're so grateful. Thanks. Thanks for all your hard work. Yeah, and, you know, it's a pipeline, right? I mean, oftentimes there's businesses that come through VSET that will then be perfect for our coaching program or perfect for Janice's investment. You know, like we're all yeah. going to work together. The ecosystem's just too small. And, you know, the focus really needs to be on the entrepreneurs. And so how do we work? come together, work together, don't compete, but collaborate and, and really be of service to those entrepreneurs in our state because they're going to need all the resources they can get. Absolutely. Yeah. Dave, could you please go ahead and ask Ellen our uh, yeah. magic wand magic question? Magic wand time, right? So this is the final question for all of our guests. And we know, we know you know this, but if you could change one thing about Vermont magic wand, what would it be? Well, in the case of the business environment, it would be 
that it's really, really important to ask for help when you need it, to recognize that nobody goes it alone, that your business to be successful and to not, and to actually really, um, to be viable is about being able to pay livable wages and good benefits to your employees. Mm. Like it's not just okay. And it's not okay enough to just say, well, you know, I've got my owner's draw and I'm good. You know, it's really about understanding the importance of you as the business owner in supporting all of your employees and helping them to have a standard of living that is really enough for everybody and not just for a few. And I think that there's a real lack of understanding of that in the more traditional economic development world and in the leg- state legislature that the 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 view is that if you're in business, you know what you're doing. And so I, I would really love for that mindset to change that like, no, we're really all in this together. And what we really need is to be supportive and provide wraparound services for business owners, just like we do for individuals who are struggling, because they don't need it all the time, but there's certain times when they do need it. And to recognize that if we can help Vermont-based businesses be more profitable, that's going to translate to better wages and better benefits, which is then going to have, like, really help us on the tax revenue side of things and allow us to be able to have the funds to do all of the environmental and social and other things that we aspire to have in place for everybody, right? That Amen, is, Ellen. But we don't focus on the bottom line yeah. of businesses. And it's, you know, that's, and, and what the business owner, not just looking for a handout, but what the business owner can do to actually run a really good business. Yeah, I love that. Because it's, you know, the magic wand. We, we, need, we need to have a, a focus on human well-being at the center of our economic model instead of capital accumulation and personal wealth 100%. accumulation, right? <clears throat> economic well-being, overall, a sense of mental well-being, it all comes down to feeling like you have your basic needs met and you have enough. You know, you're not strapped and stressed. So what can the business, what can business's role be in that? It's not the be all and end all. We need community. We need connection. We need human uh, interactions. We need social spaces. We need art. But I think that often what gets left out of the conversation is what's the purpose of the economy? Is it is it capital accumulation and, and wealth building for a few? Or is it really about human well-being? And what does that actually mean? So that's... You know, that's a long-winded answer to get there on that. On that, sorry about that, but uh, you know, it's your time. It's really to me. It's it's about this big notion about uh, about well-being, and what does that really mean for people? How do we build that in Vermont? I think Vermont's the place to do it to be a showcase for the rest of the country. Other countries are doing it. We can be, you know, organizing our current uh, the way we budget in the state, what we actually put our, our, our tax dollars towards. We really oriented towards human well-being. I think we'd come up with some different ideas about what we should be doing. Damn, she's good. All right, Ellen. Thank you very much for coming in and sharing your journey and uh, helping us get the message out. Thanks for the opportunity. This has Thanks been Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. The series is supported by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications.
a question mark on the teleprompter.